welcome to the Upon This Rock podcast. Uh, my name is Max Thomas. Thanks for checking out the podcast today. Could not be more excited. I'm kicking off a new series today called Crucifying Elephants and Donkeys. That's right. We're talking about politics. It's that time of year. Well, it's really that time of every four years. Uh, that four-year cycle that we all hate, that stresses us all out, uh, that makes friends enemies and sometimes enemies friends. Uh, it's election season. And obviously, a lot of what's going on in our world today kind of revolves around the upcoming election and politics in general. And so I thought it would be important for us to have a conversation about it as well. Joining me for the conversation today is Caitlin Shess. Uh, Caitlin is a THM student at Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater, where I got my master's degree. Uh, she writes about religion and politics for a number of online publications. And she has a book coming out on September 8th, um, the link to which is in the show notes below. Uh, and the book is called A Liturgy of Politics. And I'm just going to say it up front, I think this is the best book on politics from a Christian perspective that I've ever read. Uh, it is a wonderful treatment of the subject. And what she does in the book is what I wanted to do in this first episode. And that is this, before we, in future episodes, talk about any specific issue, any specific policy, any specific topic. I think we need to completely reframe the conversation. And so we all, the reason this time of year stresses all of us out is because we all know that the political discourse in this country, and it's the same inside the church as it is outside of the church, is completely toxic, that is completely unhealthy, and that everything immediately devolves into this Republican, Democrat, us versus them, truth versus fake news, Trump versus the world, you know, left versus right, donkeys versus elephants. And what I think we need to do as Christians is we need to move beyond that partisan framework and actually begin to think Christianly, to begin to think theologically about politics. Because one of our, and this is where, why I wanted to talk to Caitlin, is I think we need to approach the subject of politics first as a Christian, not as a Republican or a Democrat. And what I would actually argue is that you can only approach it as a Christian, not as a Republican or a Democrat. That I, that I do not affiliate with Democrat or Republican, that I affiliate with Christ. And that's why I'm calling the series Crucifying Elephants and Donkeys, because I think as a Christian, I need to crucify those things. I need those those labels and those categories to die in the way that I think about politics and how I, how I think the, the world is to be arranged around Jesus and who he is and his ethic and his way. And that's a really hard thing to do because our culture immediately pressures everyone to identify what team they're on, immediately politicizes everything so that we can clearly identify what side of the aisle you are on so I know who I do and don't have to listen to, who I do and don't have to trust, who I do and don't have to respect. And as Christians, I think we have, we have to find another way. We need to break out of that simple partisan way of viewing the world and talking about things, and we need to actually um, find our way out of that mess. And so that's what I'm hoping this episode does. I had a wonderful conversation with Caitlin uh, uh, about her book. It centers around some of the things that she writes about in her book, and, and we talk about a number of other things as well. Um, and again, I, I think everyone should go and buy the book. 
one last thing before we get to the conversation with Caitlin. Um, I understand that the the audio quality in this episode is not the greatest. I don't know if it was my internet connection or the recording um, software I was using, uh, but it's just not as good as I would like it to be or as it has been. And so I apologize up front for that. I'm still trying to figure out uh, what the best system for everything is. So uh, please excuse that. But I think you're going to really, really enjoy the conversation. And like always, I want you to join in the conversation. And so if you have anything to add, question, nuance, challenge, uh, also in the show notes is the link for you to leave a digital voicemail for me. I've already had a number of people do that. And uh, and we'll add those into a future episode to continue some of these conversations uh, as we have time. So thank you so much for checking out the pod again. And I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Caitlin. Right. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the podcast. And is it Shice? Is am I saying that correctly? I should have asked this earlier. Shess. Shess. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I should have asked earlier. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for hopping on the podcast with us um, to talk um, one of the things that you're not supposed to talk about, apparently, which is right. politics, especially religion and politics. But here we are. Uh, it's 2020. <laughs> what else? Do, what else do we have to talk about? Uh, especially in, you know, August of 2020, mm-hmm. you know, the day after the, the DNC finished. Um, <laughs> so let's start here, uh, in your book. So you have a book coming out mm-hmm. uh, and I will put a link to that, um, to the, the Amazon page in the, the show notes, uh, called the liturgy of politics. And, and that's going to be kind of our launching pad here for today is, is this book, which is, I just got done telling you before we were recording is phenomenal and everybody needs to go buy it um <laughs> sorry just to make it awkward for you uh no, thank you <laughs> yeah, that's it is it's honestly it's so good it's it's really 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 good i texted my brother i was and i have the receipts to prove it i said uh, i was halfway through the book i think i was on page like 80 something so not even not even halfway and i said i'm not even halfway through this book and it's already in my top 10 must read book list uh, yeah so it's and i mean it yeah but you make this distinction in so you make this distinction in your book between politics and partisan mm-hmm. and i'll start with a question we also we often hear this phrase in the church mm-hmm. where people will say typically to the pastor just don't get too political mm-hmm. and that's usually set up against i just want to talk about the gospel mm-hmm. i don't want to come in here about politics I just want to hear about Jesus. And, but I think you make this distinction in the book between partisan and politics and what we, we actually really do need to have political conversations. What we don't need to have mm-hmm. is partisan conversations. And unfortunately, most of the conversations that we have, because it's the only way that we know how to think about it and talk about it, are partisan conversations dive into that for us for me a little bit, because I think that was a great um, kind of a framing statement in, in your book. Yeah, thank you. That's one of the things that is most important to me um, as someone who is having those conversations in the church with people that um, are against some of those conversations even happening. But then when they do happen, like you said, they're rough. Um, typically, I think when we say, I don't want to get political or I don't want my pastor to get political, 
we have this conception of political being kind of dirty and lower and mucky. And we also tend to mean political equals a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's one or the other. And if you're going to say something from the pulpit that's political, this just happened on Twitter recently. I posted something about, hey, if you're going to deal with some kind of political issue, and what I mean is things like the biblical command to, to care for the foreigner, things like you know caring for the poor and the vulnerable, those have political implications. I don't think from pulpit a pastor should be saying vote for this person, but there are going to be political things that are said. And someone went on a rampage about like, remove politics from the pulpit. And, da, da, da. and I understand where they're coming from if they've been hurt by a pastor who was saying you have to be a Republican to be a Christian, or you have to vote for this person. Or, But what I want us to do is kind of broaden our understanding of that word in a certain way, broaden it to include all of the different creative ways that we can seek flourishing in our communities that involve legislation and different politicians and all those kinds of things, but that also include serving in our community centers and advocating, going to rallies and kind of pushing leaders who already are in power to do things differently. And then kind of narrowing it to say partisan is its own kind of other thing. When you're talking about what is a uniquely Democratic issue or a uniquely Republican issue, those are important questions to get into, who you're going to vote for, you know, what kind of economic philosophy that you ascribe to, all those things are important. But when we act as if those words are synonymous, we prevent Christians from having conversations about things that are in scripture. You know, I've heard when I've taught on, I did Sodom and Gomorrah uh, a few months ago and talked about very recently, the Texas governor had prevented any refugees who had already been allowed to be in our country from settling in Texas. They were legally allowed to be there and they couldn't come to Texas. And I'm teaching to a congregation, to a group of women who are in Texas and the past has something to say about Abraham and Sarah and the way that foreigners are treated in different nations and how the leaders of nations are judged by how they treat foreigners. So obviously I have to talk about this, you know, that's important. It's not me saying I have some political preference or pet issue and I'm going to find a way to like force it to be relevant. It's saying scripture confronts us in our time and place with issues that have political relevance. And if we refuse to say something about it, then I think we're being the same as kind of like the false prophets in Jeremiah that were like, peace, peace, when there is no peace, you know, you have to tell the truth. And if the truth is there's a biblical command that we are being restricted from actually fulfilling because of political decisions, then we have, as especially some, you know, more privileged people in my context, we have the obligation, I think, to advocate for changes to those things. And that's not adding something to our obligation to preach the gospel. That's doing it more fully in the context that we're in. Yeah. And so you make this, you have a quote in the book. It says this, you say, perhaps the problem with too closely aligning our faith in a particular strain of conservative politics isn't that the movement is, quote unquote, too political, but it's actually insufficiently political. And I had I wrote this in the in the, the margins of the, the uh, pre-release copy that you sent me. Maybe the issue is, I think you could say it this way, maybe the issue is that we, it's not that we've taken Jesus's ethics too seriously. Mm -hmm. Maybe the, the issue is actually that we have not taken them seriously enough. Yeah. Maybe Jesus's ethics and the way that he wants to, his church and his people to live in the world in a particular way in the world. Maybe we actually haven't taken that seriously enough. And I think that the refugee immigrant conversation is a great example. Yeah. So I was, maybe you could, I was having this conversation with a young person a couple of months ago and he was talking about, well, why should we help these people? What do they 
offer us? What do they do for us? Right. And he's making this and he's a, he's a Christian, right? I've known him for some time. Mm-hmm. And he makes this statement of like, why do, why do they deserve any of our help when all it is going to do is cost us anything and they're not going to contribute anything to the society. And I told him, I said, now, if you want to make a purely partisan um, argument that the best way to, re- to, to deal with borders is X or Y, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But as a Christian, we are called to have an, a, an ethic and what you, I think, rightly just call a politic, a way in which we want to organize the world that says, no, we have to be for immigrants and refugees. And then we have to try and fit the political system that we live in within that framework. Mm-hmm. And too often, I think we do it the other way around. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. We let our, I think, commitments at least we might like kind of baptize them, <laughs> but we tend to make their root be something in um, our partisan commitments. And, and there's something about that that makes sense in, in the sense that if our primary community is our political community, if our primary community is I'm a Republican that lives in this area of the country, then it makes sense that those would be kind of the foundational things. And then if our faith is sort of like extra on that, then we would you know filter it through that. But if our primary community is the global historic people of God, then that, I mean, we can't fit all of those commitments within one party or within one politician, and we shouldn't really right. try to. Right. And, and I think too often we do. Right. And yeah, I mean, for the, for the circles that we run in, we will just I come out and say it now for the first circles that we run in typically evangelical, I'm charismatic Pentecost, whatever it's the Republican party. Right. I mean, yeah. that's it, it. There's, and you talk about this in your book, like the issue is both sides so it runs both ways but the the crowds that we run in it's it's mainly the republican party but i think you you just touched on something that's really important is what does this say about the fact that we have such a a partisan view even of our faith and we can't even talk about the way that we want to live in the world outside of the partisan lines that have been drawn what does that say about our identity and and where and where we're getting our identity and how we're letting that identity shape who we are and the decisions that we're making. Yeah, yeah. It's, I just had a conversation with someone uh, who's a Christian um, who was asking to, to work through some of the issues with uh, race right now. You know, she feels like she's learning about this for the first time and struggling through it. And it was really hard to kind of get her outside of this uh, box that she was in of that's a Democrat thing. And so it's a Democrat thing. So that must not be a Christian thing. And right. I, and she's a compassionate person who I think has been reading a lot and trying to grow. And it was like, this was the stop. Like it just, it couldn't go beyond if it feels like a democratic issue, then I can't do it. And one of the other just like kind of startling moments in our conversation was when after we've been like working through this for a few minutes, she goes, it was just easier before. Like it was just more simple to think Christian is Republican and I could kind of take comfort in that. And I didn't have to do as much research or think so hard. I could just go and, you know, vote down the ballot Republican. And that was, I could know that was the Christian way to do things. And I mean, not only does that, I think, display not her necessarily individual, but our kind of corporate idolatry of the Republican party, but also just, that impulse that we have towards simple answers. And I do think there are some people in our generation who are like, okay, well, it's not the Republican party. Maybe it's the Democratic party. It's like, it's not 
going to be either one. And I get why it would be easier and comforting to just pick one, but that's impossible. Like it's not going to, you're going to not only does that speak to a prior idolatry, but I do think even just participating in politics in that way continues to form you to have your primary identity and community be in that party. And so you might start out going, I'm going to go there just for pragmatic sake, you know, but, but I'll be okay. And not realizing that just the action of kind of putting yourself in that position, not that joining a party or voting for a certain person is, is going to necessarily do that. But if you go, I'm going to, I'm going to just be a Republican and and I'm going to go in there, but I'll keep my theological commitment. It's not going to work that way. You're going to be shaped by the spaces that you've put yourself in the voices that you're listening to. And so if you're not going in from the very beginning thinking, I'm going to I'm going to vote for this person. I'm going to participate in the mechanics of this party, but I'm going to do it from a place of perspective of the coming kingdom of God. If you don't start out with that perspective, I don't think there's any world where you end up with right. it. And I think too many of us think we'll kind yes. of find our way there. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And what a uh, pastor that I follow, I don't know if you know the name Brian Zond, but mm. he, he has he has this book, um, uh, letter postcards from Babylon and he deals with some political stuff in there and the idea mm-hmm. of empire and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things he says, I reread that book, most of it after, after I read yours, just in thinking through some of this stuff. But one of the things he, he poses this question in there, of who gets to be the adjective and who gets to be the noun in our identity? Mm-hmm. Are we Christian Republicans? Meaning <laughs> that we are, the, the Christian is the adjective that serves the Republican yeah. or are we Republican Christians, so that our political party serves our 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 faith, and he, he goes so far to say, is, I, I don't even think that you can put one of our our partisan our two party systems on Christian because yeah. eventually you're going to have to cross some of those boundaries. With a great example that you you just said is like with the whole issue of of race, right? I mean, we have, and you see that I think playing out right in front of us. You have the kind of political left getting a thousand percent behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And this gets into the whole, can you support the movement, not the organization and blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you have the political right who's lagging behind uh, to, I think, put it, put it lightly and for a whole bunch, and for a whole bunch of different issues. And part of that is the complexity of it, which is what you were saying. And we've just reduced it down to, you know, three three issues who is who's you know against abortion who's against gay marriage and who's you know one one other one whatever and that, that's it right we've we have yeah. our three or we have our three issues and we vote republican on them because that's what the bible tells us to do and it's just like, well what if what if it's just not that what if it's just not that simple because to be a christian to follow the king and his kingdom. I mean, even one of the things that you just emphasize over and over in your in your book is to say that Jesus is a king who has a kingdom is a political statement. Yeah. That he that's a political statement in and of itself and we can't can't get away from that. Um so how do we how do we reframe this conversation then? I mean, we've kind of alluded mm-hmm. to it a little bit already, but how do we how do we start to think through some of these topics in light of the coming kingdom and try and do it in a way that doesn't slip immediately back into mm-hmm. partisan, you know, bifurcation of Democrat Republican? Yeah, I think I mean, 
I, I kind of wrote this book thinking, okay, I'm writing a book about faith and politics. And by the end, I was like, I think I kind of just wrote a book about the church and how much I love the church. Yes, and what did, that yeah. Is, yeah, thanks. <laughs> because it's not only something that's so important to me personally, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I think we treat this as an extracurricular issue. Like come to this, you know, parachurch organization or come to like this Wednesday night group and we'll kind of talk about politics and and then you go home. But like, that's not a normal part of the life of the church. Instead of thinking these things are too impossible to to separate. They, they yeah. will come up every time you teach, I mean, about so many issues when it comes to money, when it comes to, like we said, immigrants and refugees, when it comes to, I mean, even just how much of the Old Testament has to do with God caring about the construction of a community and what's good for it. Not that we take those rules and just kind of plop them into our context writ large, but that we say God cares about this. And so we care about it. Um, and I think when we start with that primary identity of the community and people of God, I think it gives us some more strategic options to go, okay, I can vote for a party or for a politician, not only without them having to be my savior, but also with the acknowledgement that because I'm giving them my vote, I'm also going to ask a lot of them if they get in power or if this party's in power. I'm going to not just let this singular vote be, okay, I did my civic duty. No, if this is a part of what it means to be a Christian, to seek the flourishing of your community with all the tools that you have, then you vote as wisely, as faithfully as you can. And then regardless of who wins, but especially if whoever you voted for wins, you hold them accountable, you push them on places you think they're wrong. Um, and then it also gives you the freedom, I think, to go, okay, this one presidential vote is important. I'm going to make a wise decision here. But also, because my church is in a particular community and I'm aware of the needs of my neighbors, I'm going to care a lot about local elections. I'm going to care a lot about what my local community center is doing. I am not going to be just rooted in, okay, well, I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I have this kind of identity. And so that equals voting this way and kind of posting on social media this way. And no, if your identity is rooted in the needs of your neighbors and your desire to seek glimpses of the coming kingdom of God that is promised this redeemed creation in eternity, then that's going to mean not only that you have some freedom, I think, to vote strategically, but also that you have some freedom to go. These one kind of like symbolic instances of my political identity are not the sum total of it. I can do all sorts of other things that seek the flourishing of my community. And even if I end up going, okay, maybe that one vote was a bad decision or like that was so hard. I did my best, but like I wasn't happy with it. It doesn't have to be everything. Because I think when it comes everything, that's when you get Christians being like, okay, well, if all of my identity is wrapped up in this vote or a substantial portion of it is, then I have to defend everything this person does, or I have to defend we, everything. We've done that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And we, I mean, I, I think most people have, that is the extent of our political conversation is who are you going to, to vote for? Right. And yeah. the extent of our political, like you said, involvement. And some of that is I think what you're alluding to is this split in the way that we view Jesus's, I mean, even what the gospel is, right? Yeah. And we've we've relegated Jesus to, I guess, to kind of borrow a political term, uh, he's the, the minister of afterlife affairs, right? Mm -hmm. He's just the guy yeah. who gets us, like, that's his job. But we have all okay. these other positions in the world that we need the government, like the physical government Mm -hmm. Caesar, we need Caesar to run. That Jesus, yeah, yeah, okay. You deal with souls and revival, whatever we mean by that, and you do with all these other. You do with these things, right? That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, and but all this other stuff, the way that we actually live life, 
we, that we deal with over here and that we deal with these people. But I, th- I agree with you. I think you, you set out to write a book about politics and you really ended up writing a book about the church, which Paul calls a, a, a polis. It's a politic. Yeah. It's a people that have an actual politic. And I think it's Stanley Hauerwas who says that the, the church is a political institution and that yeah. Jesus's gospel is a political gospel. I mean, those are, that's a strong way to put it. But I think if you define politics kind of, I think as you are in your book and as we are here, that politics mm-hmm. is just, how are we going to organize our life for the betterment of our neighbor and the weak and the yeah. poor and the vulnerable? Then that's absolutely what Jesus's yeah. ministry is. I don't know how you, and, and I don't know how you read the prophets without coming to that same conclusion. Maybe the issue is that we don't actually ever read the prophets, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, and we don't ever have, we don't ever preach through the prophets, so we don't know yeah. what they say, and we don't know uh, what they what they care about. I, I mean, one of the things that always astounds me, like you you quote in one chapter, you quote Isaiah one, and where the prophet Isaiah calls Israel Sodom, and the reason that he calls them Sodom is not because they're debaucherous and they're immoral and they're whatever it's because they don't care for the poor they don't care for the widows and the orphans and this uh jewish author abraham joshua heschel he has this line i'm summarizing it i'm paraphrasing it but he says the things that we think are most scandalous the prophets could basically care less about and the things that we Mm -hmm. see that we think are on the margins the prophets think are a catastrophe they're they're a crisis and he's talking about in context on but caring for the poor and the orphan. So what, yeah. how should we see ourselves as the church? How should we see ourselves as a political institution, as a, a people who have a, a politic? Um, hmm. What is that politic? What is that way in which we're called to organize ourselves in the world? Yeah, I think part of, part of it is one, just seeing ourselves as the primary community that we have and not just our local group of people, which I think we tend to sometimes, you know, the pastor will be preaching through um, something in the epistles about disunity or, you know, or, or mistreating people within your own congregation. And we'll all kind of like pat ourselves in the back and be like, oh, we're so like united. Unity. So united. All right. Yeah. yeah. Such yeah. a buzzword. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And we forget that at least most of the churches in Dallas, for example, the church that I go to, we're honest about this. Like we're partly the result of segregation. Like we're predominantly white church that not only, you know, has had our own biases throughout history, but also exists in a community that's been segregated by both personal bias and policy. And so we might seem like pretty united, but it's actually because we're often pretty homogenous. And we struggle enough in my own context, just with generational differences. And we kind of go, okay, well, we're struggling with this, but we don't even realize how many other things there could be. And so if we have a sense of ourselves as the people of God throughout both history and around the world, um, and doing that, I think, is really hard, like really getting a sense of what different expressions of the faith have looked like throughout history and in different contexts in the world is harder than I think. I mean, we do like a mission Sunday and we'll put up like very diverse pictures of like different places and we'll be like, we did it, you know, and that's not. We support these people. Yeah, Right. (laughs) right. That's that's not the same thing as. And a short-term mission trip is not the same thing, you know, as really having a sense of 
hey, we're not the primary, like American, mostly white churches. We are not like the standard against which all other ones are judged different. Like we're just one expression that has its own positives and negatives and has participated in lots of negative things, but has also done good things. And we have to kind of have a sense of our own, you know, difficult identity. And then I think I talk a lot in the book about you know, the different practices and ways and language that we use in the church that are supposed to form us in that way. So primarily being the sacraments, baptism and communion. And do we have a strong enough sense of how those are supposed to form us? Not only as a community, we use that word. So, I mean, I use that word a lot. I've used it like 10 times already. That's the word number two. Yeah. Right. But we tend to use it in like a, we're all friends kind of way, instead of like a, I have entered into a set of obligations and responsibilities. My identity is different. Um, I think I mentioned in the book a story of, of being in a class at DTS where a professor asked us about, you know, would you baptize people if you were in a country where you could be killed if you baptized people, if they were baptized? And that's a serious question. And we are so grateful. I mean, I'm so thankful and grateful to live in a country where I don't have to worry about that. But at the same time, there almost was this like undercurrent of idea that well, it's totally harmless to get baptized in our country. And that's that should be really heartbreaking to us that you could get baptized and have it change nothing about your life or your finances or your relationships. Like it should put obligations upon you. And so do we practice communion and baptism in ways that do that? And I try in the book to be both specific about some things and then vague enough that hopefully people in different contexts with different you know understandings of those things could benefit from it. Um, because I do think even if we disagree about the way you do those certain things, even, you know, in my own context, saying the word sacrament would probably be like a little bit scandalous. Um, but yeah, a lot of people in my context wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Right. Right. <laughs> so com- yeah. Communion and baptism. Yeah. Um, but even just if we do those differently, we have different ways of understanding how they work or what they mean. There are some like things that we really should be able to all agree on. And some of that is. This is a political, you know, you're becoming a citizen of the coming kingdom of God, and that will place obligations upon you both locally, like your local congregation matters, but it also means that you're now a part of something that makes you more similar to someone in a totally different time period or place. Um, I think, I don't remember the, the, the name of the theologian I quote in the book who talks about this, but there's, um, I think it's in there, where they talk about how there's supposed to be this sense that Jeremiah and Mary and Jesus and the disciples are closer like in time and space to us than our next door neighbors who are not Christians, like in a very literal kind of sense. And do we really live like that's true? And part of the disruption that had to happen in modernity to kind of keep that from happening was let's make your identification be with your nationality. And so now geography and time are the, are the greatest ways that you identify with other people. And that's like, there's something powerful, I think, about identifying with the people in your same time and space. But have we lost a sense of they're not really that separated from us? And we have obligations to the community that looks like them and looks like us and looks different from us in really significant right. ways. So Right. Yeah. And you you just touched on this idea that we're kind of talking about our identity, that we are citizens of a, of a coming kingdom. And the way that, that I had always... I don't know if I was explicitly taught this or if it's just kind of how I interpreted it. Sometimes it's hard to remember, but mm-hmm. the way that I was thought about that growing up was, I don't want to blame somebody else for my own yeah. <laughs> stupidity. Um, but some of the, one of the ways I, the way that I was thought about that growing up was that I'm actually in a sense from heaven, right? I'm, I'm going to right. heaven and that's where my home is. And now I'm just this sojourner pilgrim, right? And you kind of misuse the biblical language 
And yep. so that means then I'm just kind of passing through like the wind and then, but yep. I'm actually going to get to the place that I, that I end up. But when you make the argument in the book, and I think you make it convincingly that when Paul is talking about being a citizen, it's not to the detriment of this world. It's yeah. for the sake of this world. And that the, the politic, if I could sum up, I think what you argue in the book, the, the reason that we are the church and Christians actually are extremely political in, in this sense is that the way in which we are called to organize ourselves is for the sake of the world. It's for the sake of the poor. It's for the sake of the marginalized. And if we're going to care for those types of people, that is going to require real life decisions. We can, that's not just this spiritual sense. One of the, um, see how I have it written down here, but one of the quotes, one of my favorite quotes in the book is you say this, you said the point of the kingdom is, is uh, the point is not, excuse me, I want to quote you correctly. The point is not that the kingdom is purely spiritual, but that it extends to the entire world. All of this means that when Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, and you're quoting John 18 when Jesus is standing before Pilate, he's not saying that it has nothing to do with this world. He's saying that his kingdom does not conform to the expectations and the paradigms of this world, nor does it follow the rules of that the earthly rulers do, that Jesus's ministry is not apolitical, but it, that it refuses to acquiesce to the narrow political categories of the day. And I think that's exactly right, is that we're extremely political in the sense that we're called to live for the world, even at our own expense. I mean, this is the cross, right? I mean, this is the core message of the crucifixion is that we have a cruciform politic that we're supposed to lay down our lives for the sake of our of our neighbor and for the poor and for the hungry and for the immigrant and the refugee and that has real life when you when you start to scale that even just in your own family and local community that has political connotations yeah. because you're trying to organize society in in a certain way and how do you see and you kind of already touched on it but how do you see what do we need to do to 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 grapple with that identity more and you talk a lot in the book about formation mm. how do we get that sense formed in us more deeply why, why are we maybe another way to put it, why are we not formed that way yeah. um how is it that we are formed more by the republican party largely or the democratic party but in our context mainly the republican party and not by the crucifixion where does where have we gone awry and then how do we try and write that that ship yeah, that's really hard to answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think the main um, motivation I had when I even wanted to write a book at all about politics, I would have rather just like handed people a bunch of books I had read and been like, you should read these. They're really good. But the thing that I felt like wasn't kind of contained in one thing I could hand to people was that I don't know that the answer is more information or more sermons about this or more Sunday school classes. Um, I would love if you had a Sunday school class on, you know, the political implications of the prophets and Jesus, you know, Sermon on the Mount. So that'd be great. I would love that. Um, I don't think most of the time when churches do do a little like political education class, that's usually what happens. Um, but well, usually, I, think I think you actually say in the book that actually usually contributes to the problem is yeah. when, the, when churches do those little come to our set and, and our church has done it before come to our little Saturday seminar. We're going to bring in this person 
And it's essentially a cover for, we're going to tell you who to vote for and the three issues to care about and whatever. I'm not trying to be a cynic, but that's yeah. what it actually is. Well, and I think it's, I, I was just having conversations with someone recently who said there's this like generational uh, decay in our ability to have that conversation that we've like inherited and we just kind of keep doing it. And I think we, we pull out a few Bible verses to justify what we already think and then we're done. Um, but I do think even if we had a really robust, good Sunday school class or sermon series, or here's a book to read, ironic, cause I wrote a book, but like, I don't know that the answer is here's the information. <laughs> right. Right. Because I think the reason we're so captive often to, I talk in the book about these four alternate gospels that are political. I think the reason that we tend to be either the Republican or Democratic Party or a certain story about the world that's really, you know, captivated us is because those stories and the stories that Republicans and Democrats and, you know, politicians tend to tell is affective. It it pulls on our heartstrings. It tells us a certain story about the world that is intriguing and captivating and alluring. And, and it tells us what, what to fear. You know, it gives really frightening, um, both through like images and sounds and emotional appeals. Like this is what to fear. This is what to love. Here are your people and here are not your people. And there's very easy ways to kind of divide people that way. And, and those are powerful things. And I don't think it's, it's bad that those are powerful. I think humans were created, um, as Augustine, you know, famously said to be leaders. And so we are supposed to be captivated by a story that motivates our work in the world. And I think, unfortunately, um, a lot of our churches have tended to overfocus on the sermon, which I love a good sermon, but if it takes too long, then I don't love it, even if it's really good. <laughs> um, and I, I think we focused a lot on, I mean, I remember the youth groups I grew up in, it was a lot of the world is about feelings and we're going to tell you the hard truth. You know, we're objective. We have, we believe in absolute truth. the truth in love. Right. Yeah. And they're all relativists and like, we know the truth. Um, and I don't think that prepared people very well for a world that actually maybe a world that better understood how we were wired than the church did. Um, James K. Smith, who I quote a lot in the book and I just think is really great. He has a line about, we've been pouring water on the head for a fire that's in the heart. Like we are not going to reach people by just giving more Bible verses and information. We need to paint a picture of the world. And when I think about what happened with me in seminary, you know, I started uh, seminary in 2016, right out of college and had had like a difficult college experience with election stuff and then came into seminary. And I, I think that first semester, the thing where I kind of was able to see a future for myself and for the church where I felt hopeful, even in the midst of something that was really hard. The reason was I had a couple of professors and a couple of classes where they were good at painting an affective picture, not only of here's what Christian life could be like, here's what the church could be like. But I think more importantly, they were able to say, look, the earth is going to be redeemed one day and we are going to live in communion with God and we're going to do material things with our real bodies. And we're going to, you know, the kinds of, we're going to have the kinds of flourishing we're supposed to seek now. And that was such a beautiful picture that it was motivating in a way that even if I had had a great prof who'd been like, hey, some of that political stuff you learned is bad, it wouldn't have been as effective as the story that was presented to me. So I think we have to find, and I, I talk about in the book a few different ways I think we can do that. But again, I try and be sort of less prescriptive because not only am I young and in seminary, but also I want people in different contexts to be able to say like, what would it look like in our context to do something like this? Yeah. And the, I mean, you already mentioned them, but I think it's pertinent to our conversation. The, the two obviously major ones that you bring up are the sacraments, 
you know, the Eucharist and, and mm-hmm. baptism. And you call, I think, baptism the nationalization process or the naturalization uh-huh. process of the believer yeah. that it's the it's our it's our way of becoming a citizen in this kingdom and then the eucharist is this the way in which that grace kind of continues and that yeah. formation kind of continues to happen you know, so, and i do wonder if you would have, if i would not have known that you were a dts grad other people won't get this but maybe you'll think it's funny and i just read your book i would have thought that you were a dts student just because i, I know every dts student has to read james smith's uh yeah. imagining the kingdom and you already love and that book changed my life um yeah. imagining the kingdom and then i've gone on to to read uh the second one i haven't read the, the third one yet and and really if people want to get the full experience they should just go read smith yeah. and then come and read your book because i think you yeah. are building a lot of what he does but he talks a ton about this idea of formation that the habits that we do yeah shape us and shape our identity and our affections in a particular way. And I wonder in an earlier episode of this podcast, I actually talk about the the idea that non-denominational churches, evangelical churches don't do communion on an, on a weekly basis and why I think that that is very strange. And I don't understand why, why we've broken from 2000 years of precedent to, to yeah. do that other than we don't want to be labeled as religious because being labeled as religious is like, you know, almost as bad as being labeled a liberal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wonder if that's played a role into this, uh, honestly, is that because we've, we've, and at least in some of the low church evangelical settings, baptism isn't the bar for it. I, I, I don't know how to other than say it isn't very high. Maybe you take like a half an hour class and anybody can do it and you don't, it's just, and then there's no accountability. A lot of them, then there's no membership that you're, that yeah. you're becoming. It's just kind of this thing that happens. And then, and then there's nothing afterwards. It's just kind of like this symbolic, it's not just another symbolic act. And yeah. one of the things that you argue in the book is like, I think we need a way more robust view of both of these two things because they do shape us and form us. I, I want to switch gears though here for a, a little second. One of the things that I find troubling and and one of the reasons i even wanted to have this conversation with you is you talk a ton about in in your book about our affection our love being formed and how our religion is political it has it's not just doesn't just have political implications it is political because jesus Mm -hmm. is the king of our kingdom and so there's this there's this way that you can almost see that our politics and our religion are kind of one in the same, like that they're, they're, you can't separate them. And it, one of the things that has troubled me is how we have swapped out the politics for the partisan, but we've kept the wedding of the religion. Yeah. And so that, so we've, there's this religious rhetoric, specifically in the, I think the Republican party of God is on our side. You hear yeah. Trump called Cyrus that he's anointed, that he's raised up. Whether you whether you want to support Donald Trump is, I mean, I do care about that. But what I what I'm more concerned about is the theological language, the religious language that we use to to talk about him particularly. And and you even hear you mentioned earlier about we use this language of fear and insiders and outsiders, and we usually dress that up in this very 
kind of apocalyptic visions of if you, I mean, and you hear it and this, you hear on both sides, you hear it, you'll hear it at the Republican national convention next week, or I think it's next week is if you don't, if Donald Trump doesn't get elected again, America is going to end. The world is going to end life as we know it is going to end. And it's this draconian apocalyptic life is going to cease to exist. We're going to be in George Orwell's 1984 if Joe Biden gets elected. And then they do the, the same thing on the on the other side. Yeah. Talk about that for a second. What, I don't even know how to really phrase the question, but what do you see going on there that we have this, almost this deification, not of Donald Trump per se, but we've dressed up the, the particularly conservative politics in this religious language and so, I mean, some people will just say this is God's anointed person to bring about God's purpose for America. I mean, I've heard people tell me that to my face. What do you see is going going on there? Yeah, I mean, some of it is, and and this is sort of a cop out for uh, you know younger people, but some of it is just our history of we've had a pretty long history of both using very religious language to talk about our country um, in ways that not positive, you know, pulling verses about Israel and using them to describe America right. like that. Right, right, right. Um, but also more recently, really uh, one of the, I think I, I think I referenced the book um, in my book, but if I don't, it's a big book, uh, Francis Fitzgerald's The Evangelicals. It's this like pretty serious history, but especially the second half is really good on just going through how over time, this relationship got closer and closer and how what started out as strategic then became, you know, a singular kind of identity. Um, similarly, Andy Crouch, um, his episode on uh, Pass the Mic podcast, he does such a good job of describing how that works the same way that idols always work. You know, so a lot of people who felt quite disaffected by the sexual revolution, a lot of changes politically in our country, you know, evangelicals, Christians in general are feeling like, the morals in our country that are predominant are not matching our own. Are we and, and losing cultural power? And it used to just be assumed everyone would go to church on Sunday. We were kind of the the cool kids, and now we're not. And what do we do? And there was sort of like a strategic alliance with the Republican Party pretty early on, at least early on in the sense of the most recent history. And and there was a sense in which it was like get our moral issues figured out, like fight for us when it comes to religious freedom, when it comes to gay marriage and abortion. And we'll, in turn, generally support your foreign policy goals, your economic goals. Those aren't necessarily like inherently ours, but we'll do that. And then over time, as Andy Crouch says in this podcast, he says, idols always kind of set it up to sound like it's a good deal. And then over time, they take more and more from you and give you less and less of what you want, which really fits the history of the relationship between evangelicals and, you know, the religious right, moral majority kind of stuff and the Republican Party, where a lot of those moral issues, religious freedom issues didn't get dealt with. <laughs> um, there's There hasn't been much change nationally, of, you know, about abortion or even in a lot of states locally. And so even the, you know, promise of Supreme Court judges fixing things hasn't come true. And it does seem, at least as someone who is not a politician, but is, is interested in this, it does seem like there's not a lot of actual energy behind changing those things because it works out really well to promise something that you won't deliver. And you'll know that they will always be there. If you say you're pro-life, they'll be there. And then you can them to vote for or support economic policies, foreign policy uh, issues that now to a lot of Christians seem like, oh yeah, those are the more Christian positions when it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always seemed like that. And I do think um, 
to move away from the history for a second, one of the things that I have become increasingly convinced of is on one hand, yes, these things have been too wedded together. On the other hand, because there is inherent tension there, um, no Christian, I think, could like look at every Republican politician or the, you know, the RNC, you know, when that happens, like listen to everything and say, yeah, that's 100 percent Christian. Um, I think there's always going to be some cognitive dissonance there. And so the way that you deal with that is very similar to what you said earlier about there's sort of a set of rules and obligations that I have kind of to eternity, to Jesus, to the people in my church and Sunday school. And then there's a totally different set of rules for like the real world. And I can be pragmatic and I can, you know, the refugee doesn't, you know, contribute to the economy. And that's the kind of logic that is important for the real world, you know, and those can be held in tension. And and so while it is very wedded, on a certain sense, it's very separated. And I think the best way to describe this, um, Jerry Falwell uh, Jr., who's a big Trump supporter and, uh, was maybe still yeah, in the news lately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the president of Liberty, where I went to college, uh, I think it was maybe a year ago, he did an interview, one of the many interviews he did about why he supported Trump and how he was kind of able to justify this. And there was a moment where he talked about the two kingdoms. Um, and he said, there's the kingdom of the earth and there's the heavenly kingdom. And in the heavenly kingdom, you turn the other cheek, but in the earthly kingdom, you vote for the person who will protect your country, who will, you know, I'm paraphrasing him, but, but yeah, it was yeah, yeah. a good description to me of how, on one hand, Christian equals Republican, but on the other hand, what that means is not that the rules are the same everywhere. What it means is that I have accepted a certain amount of cognitive dissonance, and the way that I've dealt with that is, and that's not traditionally how people have thought about two kingdoms theology. He obviously, you know, takes something and kind of uses it for his own, his own purposes, but that's, a, that's the way I think a lot of us tend to think, because we have yeah. So how how do we? So I, I mean, I think you could use 2016 or this coming election as a great test case. So I look at it and I go, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm trying to think about the political implications of following Jesus, and I'm I end up all over the board, right? Yeah. I end up some. In economics, maybe I, I, I see more democratic stuff because they're more willing to give money to the poor and, and things like that. And, but I'm, you know, I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion. And so that's obviously on the Republican, Republican side. On the same token, I'm pro-life. And so I'm, I'm anti-war. So I, I don't want to just be giving money to the military carte blanche. So now I'm off the Republican party. Right. I mean, and death penalty. I mean, we just, I think the, the federal government just, I think, uh, sentenced someone, someone to death for the first time in like 17 years, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so how do we, how do we deal with that then? I mean, to get kind of pragmatic, how do we deal with that then? Um, I mean, I'll just full disclosure. I just didn't vote for president in 2016 because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to connect those dots. I didn't, because I was, things that I, I felt like were big issues, I was split on. So even if you just think about the poor and abortion, I, to me, I'm on different, talking about Democrat, Republican, partisan divide, I'm on different sides of the aisle on those two issues. And if I'm, if I'm going to vote for one, that in my mind, I'm kind of casting the other one aside, and I don't feel like I can do that as a, as a follower of Jesus. So I voted for state and local stuff, but I actually just didn't vote for president. What are, and I, I know, and I don't think there is a single way forward, but how can we, 
uh, what are some uh, some ways that we can try and help people think through that process as we're kind of coming up on November here? Yeah, that's, I feel like that's the question that in my personal life, everyone asks all the time. They're like, oh, you care about politics? Like, who should I vote for? Who should I vote um, for? Yeah. Which yeah. just gets back to the issue we were talking about earlier, right. that, that we, 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 we just get, we just reduce it down to this is, this is all that matters. And yeah. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. But, and, and I don't ever want to diminish the importance of the question because yeah, I tend, I tend to start off just being like, Hey, let's think about some broader things. Like you care about abortion. What are some other things that you can do, you know, down, down the ballot, some other people you can vote for, things like that, but not wanting to diminish at all the, the question that's really hard. Um, two things. One, I think, we have to have the ability to, like I said earlier, be strategic in it and go, okay, what do I think? I mean, not entirely pragmatic, but a little bit pragmatic of what do I think most matters nationally right now? You know, what will, what could actually happen in the next four years and how does that align with the things that are particularly you know, of interest to me? Can I vote for someone for president who I think will fix some things or have a positive impact on some things that I think are really urgent right now, even if they won't do some of the other things that I think are important? But then is there someone locally for me who I think actually really is passionate about this other thing that I didn't prioritize as much in the national election, but I can prioritize a lot when it comes to, you know, someone in my state legislature or someone who's a sheriff or a judge or, you know, school board member or something like that. Um, And being able to say, again, getting us out of that, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat and it's very ideological and I vote for all those things. Like, let's be strategic about what issues are happening at what places, what levels. But I think the other thing is, to treat our vote as what it is, um, to not treat it as either a signifier of moral purity, of a signifier of my identity or the community that I belong to, to go, okay, if I say, if I, if I think that not voting in this election will really do something, it will be a good use of my vote because it will signify to my party that I'm not happy with the selections they've given me. If I think voting third party will do that, that's, that's one thing. Um, you can debate whether that will actually do that or whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But I think your motivation should really be, how do I use this vote as the gift that it is to make some kind of contribution to the political system that inevitably impacts my vulnerable neighbors more than it impacts me? And so I don't want to give up that opportunity to make some kind of impact, but what it looks like to use that could be different. For me, I tend to think, okay, I'm going to make as wise and faithful of a decision as I can. And I, and I really do think there's a little bit of, of Romans 13 of respecting government authority that says, if we have the authority, like we should really use it. I think that's important. Um, but then going, okay, this can't be the sum total of my political involvement, but it also can't be um, something that I'm afraid to vote because it could like tinge me morally. That's not treating the vote as what it is. Treating it, what it as what it is, is to say, this is one decision among many. I'm going to make it as best as I can. I'm going to make it with the most vulnerable people in my community in mind. And then that's all I can do. And if it ends up being the wrong decision, we obviously believe in the sovereignty of God and it's not the end of the world. Um, It doesn't have to take, in other words, it doesn't have to take this just overwhelming weight. And I think when we put so much importance, especially on the presidential vote, but on lots of votes, we tend to make it so fraught that like it's impossible to do anything. And I understand why people are there. And I just want to say, take a little bit of that burden off and use this as the tool that it is among lots of other tools, you know? Right, right. And I want to just keep driving the point home. Something you said there that we've already said, but I think is to me, for anybody listening, that the point that I would hope they get across is you said, use your vote with the most vulnerable of your neighbors in mind. 
Yeah. And it, to me, this is the crux of the issue, is our entire political partisan system is built upon the idea of what is best for me and my people, right? And this is why both parties use the language of fear, why yeah. they use that apocalyptic language. This is why I think the, the church ends up using kind of this religious language. That is one of the reasons, there's, I think a bunch of reasons, but why we end up using this religious language because it's a way to clearly de delineate who's in and who's out. And then we're fighting not just for ourselves, we're in our, in our kind of weird just twisted way fighting for God as if he needs right. our vote to fight for yeah. him. Um, right. But I mean, that's, that's what yeah. we do. And, and we're, we're defending the purposes of God in America. We're defending, uh, the, the spiritual atmosphere or climate of America. And it, and it just all of a sudden gets wrapped up into this kind of idolatrous yeah. talk. And the whole time it's built upon this, I think this false premise that is selfish at the core of yeah. what do I need to do? How do I cast this vote that best serves me and my people? And what you're arguing for your book and why I think it's so powerful is, you know, the politic of Jesus is what do we do for someone else? What do you do for the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the blind, the naked, the wretches, the, the refugee, the immigrant? And, yeah. and what if voting with them in mind, and it maybe even that leads you to a different place, what if that's actually a more faithful vote even though it will maybe cost you things. Maybe it will cost you a Supreme Court nominee. Yeah. Maybe it will cost you, you know, some type of religious freedom or liberty or whatever. Yeah. And to that I would say, isn't that isn't that kind of the point? Is that we do things for I mean, isn't that the way of Jesus that we do things for other people, even if it means at our own expense, even if it mm -hmm. means at our own for our, you know, at our own cost. That's the that's the whole Christian life is to pick up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus who gave up everything for, for us. And it, it seems to be such a, a betray. And I don't think people do it knowingly. So I don't, I, I think it's yeah. largely under the service, but I think it is this actually this pretty large betrayal of our own Christian gospel that we, when, when we begin to talk about our political system in ways, we actually do it from this very selfish place that is just looking out for how do me and my people keep the most power, the most sway? How do we protect what we feel is the, the you know, God's way in America? However, we want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, and, and instead of saying, who are the least of these, and how do I care for them? Instead of doing the Matthew twenty-five, who are the hungry and the prisoner and the refugee and the sick, and what do they need most? And how can I get involved? in all of these different ways. And I, I love that you talk about this comprehensive way that it's more than just your vote for president, and, but including your vote for president. How do I get involved yeah. in all these different ways for, for their sake? Yeah, and I think part of the problem is we have too, too often conceived of ourselves, and I talk about this a little bit in the book of like, we tend to think of ourselves as a lobbying group or like a private interest group where it's us against the world. And of course, you know, if you were a company that was like hoping to get the right tax breaks for, for your company, or you were, you were the, you know, the, the legal counsel for a certain group, of course, you're going to fight for yourself. 
any other, literally any other institution, organization on earth that I can imagine, there's a certain level of fighting for yourself. And it is literally any other one. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. And it's so counter everything we know about the world in general, but especially counter everything we know about politics to go, we actually are a community with a unique set of values and a different way of structuring our life. But that doesn't mean that our goal politically is to fight for ourselves and protect ourselves and our rights. And I think unlearning that is so unbelievably hard um, because that's the way that we've grown up. And that's the way I think, honestly, we have been used by some political leaders of scare them that their rights will be taken away and they will be. I mean, and to be honest, President Trump talks like this a lot. He talks about saving you know, our faith, preserving our faith in America. And like you said, it's that should be the last thing that we're worried about. Not only preserving our faith is ridiculous. That's God's job and Trump's not going to do that. But also even just what he what we know he tends to mean by that is preserving our buildings and our tax breaks and our special, you know, whatever it is that he can kind of materialize as things that we get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should be totally fine. I mean, to, to be totally clear, there are really good, you know, religious freedom issues that we should care about. In oh, our, absolutely. You know, but, but it yeah, shouldn't yeah, yeah. come from a source of protecting ourselves, protecting our position and our power. If it's coming from a place, I think a great example of this is the recent reports that, that ICE was feeding pork to Muslim detainees. If you think that religious freedom is a good thing, and I think it is, um, I want to fight for Christian churches to be able to preach the gospel. I also want to fight against this really horrible thing that is happening to, you know, earnest believers of another faith. And if I don't care about that, and I do care about my church getting to meet without masks and, you know, coronavirus, then it really isn't coming from a place of religious freedom. It's coming from a place of protecting my privileges and my rights. And that is not, I think, the way that Christians are supposed to interact politically. We, you're preaching now. We should just take an offering right here, (laughs) right now. That's, yes, a thousand, a thousand percent. And I find it ironic every time, and I hear this a lot is we, I don't know where, I mean, I have an idea of where it came from, but we have this persecution complex yes. in the America that we just cried. They're all trying to, I mean, I, so I have friends in California and they're, they know people, they're not, but they're, can they know people that are just convinced, convinced yeah. that, you know, Gavin Newsom trying to, you know, not let churches over 50 meet and sing is just this covert, uh, operation to just shut down churches because he just hates the church. Right. And it's just this persecution complex. And I find that ironic and twofold. It's one, we're literally told everywhere in the scriptures that we can expect to be persecuted. So even if that's true, right. okay, great. So what are we, and we're supposed to, and we're supposed to not resist that. We're supposed to turn the other cheek. I mean, we have a gazillion scriptures that we could talk about. Um, and two, it goes back to where you're just saying is like, really what we're, what we're scared of, I think is we're scared of our rights being taken away. And this is where I think we've been more in, we've been more to use some of your formation language. I, I worry that, and if there's any gift of the Trump presidency, I think it's this, that it has exposed the ways in which many of us have been more formed by the Bill of Rights and our Americanism than we've been formed by the Sermon on the Mount and the, the cross. It, it is, I think, it's done that in myself. Yeah. And that was largely the crisis I, I came out of 2016 wrestling with is even in my own heart of like, what are the ways in which I have been more, I've been more formed by 
my American identity and the Bill of Rights and these things that are apparently promised to me, but are actually antithetical to what following Jesus looks like at times. And, And how have I imported those things into my faith? So now I've actually just molded my faith and I've transformed my faith into something else entirely that isn't actually faithfully following Jesus. And I, I just, I love the way that you have tried to reframe our conversation around all of this individually. And then one of the things I, I loved, and maybe we can um, kind of start to land the plane here. I just want to be respectful of your time. But one of the things that you do is you not only talk about this on an individual level, but you talk about it on a communal level that one of the things we've got to really figure out is how do we do this as local congregations? How do we do this as the people of, because it's so hard in today's environment for, I mean, I just imagine like churches that I know, if somebody walked in with a Biden shirt, people would lose their mind. They just, I, they just would. And it's how do, how, what's a way forward? Where's a, a place that we can start to say, hey, okay, I'm rethinking some of these things. I'm trying to think about the kingdom of God and the church being this politic that lives out Jesus's ethic in the world and tries to organize ourselves for the sake of the poor and the broken and the other. Yeah. I'm trying to do that. How do I try and do that now in a community when all of our pressures are trying to split everyone into this partisan divide like everything in our culture at the moment is just immediately trying to get you to say which team are you on are you an elephant or are you a donkey are you red or are you blue which team are you on how do we as a community begin to to fight against those things yeah i mean on one hand there's there's the the thing that i would say to pastors or people who have some kind of leadership in their church which is that um, we kind of touched on this earlier but we have all of these practices, things like communion and baptism, like why are they not kind of working the way they're supposed to? And I do think there's a role for pastors and, and leaders and all sorts of levels of the church. If you're at a bigger church and you have people kind of doing all sorts of things to say, how have we individualized some of these things? You know, how have we taken communion or baptism and made it into like an individual thing and not a communal thing? Um, and I could talk about that for forever, but how have we kind of distorted some of these historic practices? Like you were talking about communion, not being every week, or how have we kind of taken these and maybe changed them in ways we didn't think were significant, but actually could have had really significant implications for the way our community was formed. Um, and, and honestly, there's a lot more that a pastor or a leader can do to shape their community. But as someone who does not have a lot of ability in my local church to kind of just change everything. Um, Me either been, anymore. Right. It's yeah. been like a really good experience, honestly, to write a book where I where I have some pretty strong opinions about how we should do things differently, but not be in a position always to do them because it's given me opportunities, one, to talk to the people who who can to, you know, they're very aware that I've I care about this and we have conversations about it. But also more than that, to kind of have it's it's forced me. I think if I was a pastor writing this, it would be really easy to be like, oh, I'll just do all the right things I know, you know, because I've got the answers. Instead, it's really helpful to kind of go, okay, I'm going to start at the smallest group of people that I have some kind of sway over. Um, for me, that tends to be the people that I that live near me in my building on campus. Um, and then the next group is my Bible study of like 15-ish women. And then we go, you know, a little bit farther when it comes to like staff meetings at my church and stuff like that. But, but I really do think people underestimate 
the power they have in their congregation, even if it's not the whole congregation, but it's a group of people or a Bible study, to, to push in some places and to try and have better conversations. And to be totally honest, I think a lot of the times we don't do it because we're scared. And and I've and I've been there and I understand it, um, especially as someone who's on staff that has been like, am I going to get fired? <laughs> like, this is really yep, scary. Absolutely. I don't want to diminish like the fear of it at all. But I do know that it's pretty easy for me when someone has a lot of authority and they don't speak the truth. And I know they know it, but they're afraid of what people will say. They're afraid they'll lose money or people. It's easy for me to go you know, shame on you. Like, you know, the truth, you should say it. And then when an older woman in my Bible study, who I know thinks I'm kind of a liberal asks me what I think about this passage about foreigners, suddenly I'm like, Oh, you know, this, yeah. And I realize right, how, right. how easy it is for me in my own sphere to not say something. And I've been so convicted lately of, I don't think that I can become the kind of person that one day will have maybe some more authority and can speak truth in love and challenge people if with this very small amount of authority I have now, I'm not willing to do it. And I think we tend to think once I have more power, I'll just change everything. <laughs> and I think that, that that would be prideful. You'll run into barriers anyway. You won't get everything right. But I also think I also think that we, we miss out on how we are formed by the smaller decisions and influence we have along the way. And I think if we're silent a bunch of times or we kind of are vague or, you know, we don't kind of say the thing we know we should say a bunch of times over our history of our life and then expect to suddenly have a lot more at stake and suddenly be able to speak the truth. And I don't think that's going to happen. And so I, I think we have to go, what influence do I have now? How can I, I mean, honestly, even when it comes to speaking to the people who do have more authority and knowing that like, you, you want to do it in love. You want to do it compassionately. You don't want to beat up on your pastor, but, but recognizing that that can be scary and that can also be a way to, to make some change. And then even recognizing that maybe you have more authority in your smaller circles than you realize. Um, I think, especially for people who are younger, increasingly pastors are going to be asking, you know, that's the, the whole kind of stereotype. All the young people are leaving. What do we do? And I think when they ask being able to actually say, Hey, when you, when you kind of make it sound like being a Christian means being a Republican, you're losing people. Having the guts to say those types of things, I think will will push the conversation forward. Yeah. Wow. That's super good. Well, we'll end there. Um, we could talk about this forever, <laughs> literally forever. Uh, and I think I think we need to talk about it a lot more than we, we do. I think yeah. we do simplify it, like you said at the very beginning. We we we, I think, especially in the evangelical world, we suffer from a sickness of simplification, and we have just reduced everything down to these couple of couple of points, and it just it ends up it ends up not not working at all. And um, and so we'll leave it there. But thank you so much, Caitlin. Um, yeah. If people wanted to follow you uh, online, social media, website stuff, who do you write for so they can? And everybody should go do that. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter way too much at Caitlin Chess um, and CaitlinChess.com. Um, I still blog a little bit. Um, and yeah, Christ and Pop Culture, I write a lot there. That's really fun, especially if you're into movies and TV shows and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and also I have my email on my Twitter and I really actually love talking to people. So if you're not going to be a jerk, then send me an email. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> And when does um, when does your book come out? Liturgy of Politics. When does it come out? Yes, September eighth. September eighth. Okay. And I and I, I said at the beginning, I really mean it. It's such a great book. 
It's mm-hmm. such a needed book at the right time. It's an easy read. Um, and I think it will spark a ton of really, really good conversations um, in people and uh, in their communities. And, and so I hope I hope people um, go out and buy the book and read it. Um, Thank you. I'll, I know I've, I've recommended it to as many people as I can. It's, it really is. It's it's the best and most accessible book that I've ever read on the issue of kind of a theology of politics and how does that play out. Um, and it's, yeah, it's wonderful. So thank you so much for, for all the time and effort you put in that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. No problem. No problem. Have a great, wonderful day. We'll talk to you later, okay? Okay. All right, bye-bye.